Well, <clears throat> it is such a joy to welcome you here again this morning. I look forward every week to be able to come and stand before you and um, just to welcome you to this community of believers. Everybody needs a tribe, and Stone Seal Community Church, Community Church happens to be yours, and it's my tribe too. I'm proud of you and who you are, what you represent, and um, I take my study time to heart and make sure that I uh, have something to share with you every week for the glory of God, with passion, that can work in your daily life, and that we can all grow together in this family of believers. So I, I uh, am so delighted just to be here, and I thank you for your prayers, and I want to just welcome you if you've come in this morning and you're new, maybe it's a memorial, uh, it is Memorial Day weekend, and so you maybe are here um, just visiting, and if you are, um, we welcome you. You can only be a stranger once. You're now part of our forever family, okay? So all are welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible. Always remember that when God is at work in your life. Whatever your impossibility, he is at work. Um, I have been privileged to be a grandfather now for about four years. In fact, uh, Megan had a wedding to go to in Ohio this past weekend, and so she dropped two granddaughters at our house. You know, you're lucky I'm here today, just, just so you know. Um, God is good. Anything's possible, right? But I'm, we survived so far. And uh, it, I've forgotten, like, okay, I'm not sure, you know, I, I think I still remember the father thing. And it's fun to watch Donna do the mother thing. But I had forgotten what it's like to have a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old in the house at the same time. I definitely have forgotten that. It's like, okay, you stay right here, Rosa. Stay here. Okay, well, it's not three seconds, and she doesn't, she's not there anymore. And then anything in her path is in her hand. So it's like, oh, you're, you're fishing things out of her hands, and you're trying to figure this out. But it's good because Eliza loves to pick dandelions, and we have a bunch of them in Indiana. And so she's been picking dandelions and putting them in a vase, and that's fun. Um, unfortunately, we had sprayed. Donna had sprayed some. We killed most of ours, so we've been picking around the neighborhood, I guess, and People appreciate it, and then, uh, but they love to eat, they love life, and uh, hopefully they'll have a good memory of, of uh, Papa and Nana. And if Megan doesn't show back up in a couple of days, we're going to put them on the children's roll, and we'll tag team this effort, okay? We'll team up on it. Another great joy, yesterday we had the privilege of, I presided over the wedding ceremony for Isaac and Aaron Weimer. And uh, so, such a joyful, joyful event. Um, uh, Isaac's played here several times, and of course, Wes and Melissa and their family. Uh, so incredible just to be a part of that. And we had, actually, we had a fair amount of drama in that wedding. Uh, we sure did. Hey, did you guys know that Wes Weimer, right here on the front row, he can do a cartwheel in a suit? Okay, and this is, a, this is pretty amazing. Now, I happened to miss that part of it, but people were telling me afterwards that he actually did a cartwheel at the end of the wedding. And, uh, and most people give him six or seven on the, you know, on the, the technicality and the form and the sticking the landing. And so I said, Wes, did you, did you hear anything rip, tear, or otherwise? He said, no. I said, I think I feel pretty good. I pulled that off. You're here today. So congratulations. It was a busy day for you guys. Uh, what an incredible family. And then I'm doing the wedding and, and going through the vows. And it's kind of a critical part. And then I'm not sure what's happening, but something starts happening to my right. And I can't quite make out what's going on. And then I, I notice Alyssa uh, Baumgardner, who is doing the photography and the videoing and things, I noticed that there was just a streak on the right side of my, you know, my right side, and it's like, why is she moving so fast to get that shot? And, uh, well, she wasn't moving fast to get the shot. She was moving fast to rescue a bridesmaid who was just about ready to tumble. And uh, so uh, it's never happened to me before where the, je you, you, the legs get jelly-like and you just can't hardly stand, and then you're just about ready to tip, tip over. It was that, at that point. And then so Wes over here makes another streak. I see another streak. Wes on the move. And uh, he didn't cartwheel that time, though, but he straight over and, re and just kind of got her to where she needed to be. And we kind of got through that okay, and I think she's fine. 
a little dehydrated, sick the day before, and so she's made it. So, and that's good. And he's here to tell about it and live through it today. So, God is good, and never underestimate the importance and the special privilege and just the, the joy and the honor of living through special moments like this. It really is important. Um, and all the different things and the unexpected things that happen in life, it's so important that we take it in, that we celebrate it, and we enjoy it, and, um, and we appreciate and, we, and Solomon is so important, in fact, that Solomon urges us to not miss things like that in life. In fact, um, one of the things that I would say to you as we've studied through this book, and that is that Solomon is going to, he's going to teach some in the book. He's going to reflect a lot in the book. He's going to role play with you. Anytime he uses the phrase under the sun, he's role-playing from a secular viewpoint. I think I've kind of shared some of this with you throughout the series. But he's going to come at this material in so many different ways. And one of the, one of the ways that he's going to come at it today is that it's not so much he's going to teach and encourage. It's not so much that he's going to do a lot of reflection, though he does do a fair amount of that. More than any other thing... In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 18, Solomon will urge you. He will urge you with a sense of urgency. And it's in the view of the certainty of death, and he'll talk about that in verses 1 through 6, that and the unpredictability of life, he wants to urge you. In fact, he will tell you it is imperative to enjoy to the fullest the days that God gives you, the weddings, the grandkids, the meals, the Memorial Day weekends, the opportunities to get together once a week at church, um, the people you work with, the people you do life with. It's so important that we take in fully those moments. You know, uh, firestorms in dry Cal California are really devastating. I was reading about them this week. And um, a firestorm occurs when heat from a wildfire creates its own wind system. Nature hates a vacuum, and so it creates these vacuums, and it rushes in. The heat will rise, and things will rush in to fill it. And before long, you've got a rapid-moving firestorm, very common in very, very dry um, California. And uh, a neighbor, Conrad Grayson, was trying, this is several years ago this happened, he was trying to warn his neighbors about what was coming, a firestorm was coming, and they had to get out of their homes and out of their neighborhoods if they're going to survive. And so there was this sense of urgency, and he was encouraging his neighbors to respond to this, and they were just kind of haphazard about it and apathetic. And, and it's like, you know, you guys don't understand this. The firestorm is coming quickly. You've got to get out now. It's coming so fast. And he said some of the some of the people wanted to pack up their clothes like they were going on a trip. And they were packing luggage and uh, getting ready. He said one neighbor actually had a, a, a garden hose in their backyard, and they're going to fight the firestorm with a garden hose. Um, he said some of them were, were trying to save their televisions and their computers and other things from their home. And he said because of that, because of their delay, that this, they missed the message of urgency. About two dozen of his neighbors never made it out of the fire. And what I think I'm getting at this point in the book, in the Journal of Ecclesiastes, is that Solomon has lived the majority, uh, most of his life, he's lived it. He's now approaching the finish line of life. He's writing a journal about this. And he's kind of lived through the firestorm, and he kind of is living the firestorm because now he's looking back, reflecting, and he's trying to make an assessment of how he spent his life, what he did with his relationships and his family, and, and all the resources that God had entrusted to him. And he's looking back over it, and he's overwhelmed with this sense of urgency, the sense of firestorm that he needs to get the message communicated and conveyed here in his closing final arguments in this journal we call Ecclesiastes. And so 
on slide number five, if you would for me, um, the thematic verse for these 18 verses, I think is really well said. And he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. If you are your dad, be a dad with all your might. Are you a mom? Be all, be all in. With all that God has given you, whatever your hand finds to do, do it. Do it with all your might. If you're giving a, seeing a son get married and celebrate with a bride, do cartwheels down the center aisle. Do it. Enjoy it with all your might. Don't hold back. It's now is the moment. Now is the moment. There's this sense of urgency that Solomon brings. And, and, and I, bring, I bring this to you and I'm proposing this because what we see in this journal is that he resorts to the imperative uh, or command mood, okay, language has moods and there's uh, ways to say the things using certain moods, all right, and he uses a command mood several times in verses 7 through 10, and if we go to verse 7, he's going to say enjoy, if we go, he's going to say go and eat and drink, next slide, he's going to say enjoy life and just go do it in verse 10. And so these are imperatives. So Solomon is no longer offering advice. He's issuing orders. He's like a, he's like a, a, a military officer issuing orders. Time is of the essence. Guys, we, we don't want to miss the opportunity that life is affording. And so he begins to bark out orders kind of almost in a panic and yet, at the same time, wanting to keep his composure, and he says, and, and he says, go, eat, enjoy, and do. And he just issues forth these commands. He sees the firestorm, and he wants us to grab it and recognize it and know that these, these moments are passing, they're passing quickly. And so he's not just offering advice anymore, he is issuing commands. In fact, what he does here. Uh, in his journal in the entire chapter of Ecclesiastes 9, he, he brings you like five arguments for why you want to do why you, whatever your hand finds to do, to do it with all your might. He's going to tell you five reasons why that's true. First of all, in verses 1 through 6, he's going to talk about death. You're not living forever. Time is limited. You better make use of it. No, tomorrow is guaranteed. That's verses 1 through 6. Verses 7 through 10, he's going to argue the second argument. And he's going to say, family, enjoy the wife that God has given you. Okay? He's going to talk about, and by extension, the entire family. He's going to say, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for your family's sake. Do it because you're not going to live forever. The third argument, do it because you have the opportunity. You have today a certain capability. You may not have that capability tomorrow. You have the measure of health God has given. And so utilize and capitalize every opportunity to do what it is God is calling you to do. And whatever you happen, your hand finds to do, to do it with all your might. Might And so he argues from death. He argues from a family perspective. Verses 11 through 12, he's going to argue based on opportunity. You have the capability. Verses 13 through 16, he's going to argue from a stewardship perspective. You're going to look yourself in the mirror someday, and you're going to wonder, did I do my best? Did I do my best? Did I utilize all the abilities and capabilities God gave me? And then finally, uh, he's going to argue why you want to, whatever your hand finds to do, to do it with all your might. He's going to argue from just a standpoint of legacy, I believe. And he's going to talk to you about, uh, you may want to share your life expertise with someone someday. And if you do, then you want to do, do it, whatever you do, do it with all your might. And life's going to teach you some things. And maybe you want to invest in these little grandkids that you've got, you want to share with them someday what you've learned and what life has taught you. And so he comes at it from those five arguments. 
all right? And that's basically a summation of the entire chapter. Now, let's look at it. Uh, let's parcel and piece it out just a little bit. And so if we look on slide two, so I reflected on all of this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All right, and so Solomon is going to leave it to God to judge his deeds, determine what's commendable and what's worthless, what was worth loving and what was worth discarding. Verse 2, all share a common destiny, he says, talking about death here, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices, those who do not. In other words, the religious and the non-religious. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. Everything that happens under the sun, he says. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil. And there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they they join the dead, he says. And so he's basically arguing from the standpoint that, you know what? Human beings are messed up, and death is one of the greatest proofs that something is wrong with our humanity. It's one of the greatest proofs of it because it goes all the way back to Genesis where it talks about if we pull out of a right relationship with God, there's going to be death to face. And so we, we certainly are facing that. And so he argues that in this way. In fact, I think it's interesting, before we get to verse 4, just to make this point, if you notice uh, in verse 3, he talks about this is the evil and everything, this is the evil and everything that happens under the sun. So under the sun, um, you'll see it here, go to the, go to the next slide, uh, under the sun, verse 6, go to the next slide, uh, under the sun, verse 9, go to the next slide, under the sun, verse 11, what is he doing? Why does he keep coming back and repeating this phrase? Well, he's trying to help us understand that when you live life as if this life is all there is, it brings a certain perspective to life, and you're going to start living life in a certain way if you think that this life is all there is. If you can't get above the sun, the fact that he talks about under the sun, under the sun has an implication. There is, in fact, an above the sun perspective on life. And he's saying if we don't have that, if we have this under the sun perspective of life, and this life is all there is, we're going to live life a certain way in light of that belief, in light of that worldview. And so it's in light of this that he says in verse 4, anyone who is among the living has hope, even a live dog is better than a dead lion. Well, I think Charlie Brown and Snoopy help us with this verse. Slide number 11, if you would, on the screen. So this is the theology and the dog. So Charlie Brown, as it says in the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes, a living dog is better than a dead lion. What does that mean? He's asking Snoopy the dog. What does that mean? And Snoopy says, well, I don't know, but I agree with it. So here's the deal. Back to slide three. We love dogs, right? And they're great. There's labs and beagles and shepherds and hounds. I enjoy following on social media some of the dog sites. They, they show the protection of dogs. Dogs rescue people. They herd really well. They even babysit kids. It's amazing what dogs can do. They're loyal. They're just incredible uh, presence to have in your home and with your family. You can't think that way when you read this proverb and when you're studying this passage, and specifically this verse. Because in Solomon's time, the, the dogs were scavengers. They were lean and snarly and disgusting. They had parasites. They had fleas. Um, they were the lowest, of, lowest form of animal life. They were wild. They lived on garbage, and they even ate cadavers. And if you want to check my story, you can look at the Jezebel story in the Old Testament. So dogs were the lowest of the low. And throughout Scripture, the metaphor that's used for rebellious people is that of the dogs. And so, by contrast, the lion was considered a noble beast. 
And even today, they're called the king of the jungle. And so I, as I've already established, Solomon is in skeptical mode. He's in skeptical role-play mode. And he's going to look at life as if life is all there is on this side of, on this side of life, right? And under the sun, this world is all there is. And after that, who knows? And he's going to approach it from this perspective. And, and it's in that mode that he says it's better to be a liar, in other words. It's better to be a dog, a liar, a murderer, a scavenger, and save your skin in this life because this life is all there is. It's easier to be those things than be a noble person who's dead because this life is all there is. You see, it's dog-eat-dog world. And he's watched this unfold over many decades of life. And so it's dog-eat-dog. There's no God to hold us accountable. There's no justice to curb our behavior. And he's like, yeah, you guys are dogs. Yeah, you're, you're evil and you're sinners. And that's why we're dying. But hey, a living dog is better than a dead lion. So he's role-playing a very prevalent mode of thought with his contemporaries. This life is all there is. It's dog eat dog. Do what you got to step on who you got to step on. You got to get to the top of this thing. It's a dog eat dog world and a living dog is better than a dead lion. The, those who have lived nobly, who knows, you see. And so he's role playing a world view and he's quoting a very popular saying or proverb to help amplify his point. Verse 5 says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. Again, under the sun perspective. And even their name is forgotten, he says. And so it's intriguing because once you're through the doorway of death, you can't change. You've lost your opportunity to make a difference in, in this life. And so skeptical Solomon says that even though, even the noble lions are forgotten. And that's tough news on Memorial Day weekend. You know, it's, uh, he says their love and their hate and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. I think a story here, here would be good to help amplify the point, uh, especially the point about even their name is forgotten. Hopefully your family will never forget you. But statistics tell us between 5 and 30 years you're forgotten from the world's um, conversation. All right, most people are. And there was a headline of a, of a newspaper article's around the country that reported the news that Coleman Mockler Jr. had died unexpectedly at the age of 61. Anybody here ever heard of Coleman Mockler Jr.? Okay, nobody. Okay, Solomon can say, I rest my case. But we'll continue. Even though he was a household name when he died, this is 30 or so years ago. You've probably never heard of him. My suspicions were confirmed just a second ago. He graduated from Harvard in 1965. He became the treasurer for a company that he founded in 1901, that had been founded in 1901, making razor blades. It was called the Gillette Company. And within two years, he was vice president, then senior vice president, then executive vice president, and then all within nine years of being hired, he was the chairman of the board and the CEO. The stock value, my document says, the stock value of Gillette increased 50-fold under his leadership in a dog-eat-dog corporate world. He would, go on, he would go on to earn millions in salary, millions more on Wall Street. And then at the age of 61, he said, I've had enough of the dog-eat-dog world. I'm going to retire. And then at the age of 61, he retires. And Forbes magazine put him on the cover of the latest issue at the time. And he's holding a razor in his hand. And you can see confidence written all over his face. 
The magazine edition was going to hit the newsstands in one week, but Forbes decided to send Mothbur an advanced copy so he could enjoy it. And when it was delivered, his office staff cheered, all the executives stood, everybody hooped and hollered and rejoiced and whistled and celebrated. And Mockler took that magazine and went back to his executive office. He shut the door, and he shut the, when he shut the door, there was a thud. Literally, at that moment, a thud that hit the ground in his office, that hit the floor. He had a massive heart attack, and he crumpled to the floor And when the medics arrived to carry him out, he was still clutching that Forbes magazine in his hand. He took his company global. He raised their stock price 50-fold. His face was on the cover of Forbes magazine. And if you go on the Gillette Company's website today, you'll be hard-pressed to find even one mention of their former CEO, And it's only been 30 years. Solomon says, even their name is forgotten. Tough truth on Memorial Day weekend. But why does he say it that way? Why does he press this home? Because he wants to urge you. He sees the firestorm of that kind of life. Where you do the dog-eat-dog, you step on who you've got to step on. And yeah, I'm a living dog, I'm better than a dead lion, a a dead noble lion, right? I made it, man, I made it. And I gave my life for this company. And I gave my life to stand at the top of that hill. Solomon says he sees that firestorm, he doesn't like what he sees and what he's feeling, and he begins to press the pen really hard when he writes it in that imperative mood. And you're going to, we're going to read it in verse 7. He'll say, he'll, he, he says, and he, he switches right away to family, right? He's going to talk about that in just a second. But he says in verse 7, slide 4, he says, go now. Go. It's in the imperative mood. It's, a, it's, the, it's the beginning of a clustering of imperatives that are nested right here in verses 7 through 10. And it's the beginning. And he says, I want you to go. I don't want you to sit around and brood over the dog-eat-dog world where people lie and cheat and steal and do what they've got to do to survive and to reach the top of the heap. Doing it my way. He says, I don't want you to sit around and, and, and brood over the, the dogs of the world who are lying and stealing and cheating. I don't want you to be all depressed that you're going to be forgotten by this world in maybe 30 years, hopefully not by your family, but, but, but yeah, for the most of us probably within 30 years, our names will be mentioned and hardly anybody will recognize or know who we were. He says, I don't want you to be depressed over those things. No, no, he says, don't do this. Instead, get up and live. Get up and live. Go, he says. And he uses the common experiences of life and and of of our home lives to try to drive home this point with the firestorm of life sweeping over the prairie of his memories and of of his history and his life lived. He says, I want you to be, I want you to have, get up and go and enjoy enjoyable, happy meal times with your family. Joyful family celebrations in verse 8. A faithful, loving marriage in verse 9. We'll read it in a moment. A hard but fulfilling work that you've done in your life and rewarding work in verse 10. So the most important thing, Solomon says, is that that any menu, the most important thing on any menu is family love. For love is turns an ordinary meal into a banquet. Love turns an ordinary meal into a banquet. And so he's urging you, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. Get out of dog-eat-dog mode. And why does he have to say something so obvious? Because he knew people that couldn't shake themselves from this dog-eat-dog mode of existence. And it was having ramifications and these these incredible consequences in his own life 
And so he's saying, shake yourself from this. You need to go, get up, eat your food with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might while you are alive. For God has already approved what you do. And a loose translation of that final phrase in verse 7 is basically, this is what God planned for you. That's what he's trying to convey. This is what God has meant from the very beginning. He's not meant for you to be every one of you to be on the cover of Forbes magazine with a razor hoisted over your head at the top of the heap. Might happen for some of you if it does, give God the glory and do it for the right reasons. But see, Solomon sees this firestorm and he's trying to urge you and me, make good decisions, readers, and my, all the people in my family are going to read his journal here. Make good decisions. Firestorm approaches. So I would just say to you, go, get up and go. Don't brood. Don't waste another second, another moment about the dog-eat-dog world in which we live and how that plays out in so many ways. Get going, he says. It's command mood. A general barking out orders to the troops. Get up. Let's go. Get started living. And I love the fact that Solomon doesn't say here that what you need to do to really enjoy this thing we call life, you need to get a palace. You need to get several palaces. He had many. He doesn't say that. He, says, he doesn't say, well, you need a lot of gold because he had tons of it. He doesn't say, you really need fast horses to really enjoy this life. He had a lot of them. He loved to, to breed uh, horses and race horses. Uh, he didn't say you need lots of building projects in order to, to do this thing we call life. Instead, what he says, just start with a good meal made with love in an ordinary home with a good family. Start right there. And then he says in verse 8, he amplifies the truth. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Okay, white garments, I think we all know probably that it was a, it, these were festival outfits. They're reunion outfits that he's talking about, special family feasts and gatherings. And when they would get together, they would wear their white garments. And so it's a symbol of joy, of happiness, of really enjoying life and, and the festivities. And so Solomon says here, he says, I want you to wear white garments. I want you to, to wear cologne and perfume. Always, he says, always be clothed in white. Always anoint your head with oil. Now, they're not taking him literally. They know what he means, what he's driving at. And he's saying... He's saying, I want you to make every occasion a special occasion in life, even if it's ordinary or routine. I want you to do that. Slide um, 13, Heather Lindy wrote an obituary uh, column in a, a city in Alaska for several years. And she had a mantra, and it's summed up in the title of her book, Find the Good. And it's what she always tried to do when every life that was lived, she would try to find the good and write about that and focus on that in these obituary columns. And she talks about a waitress who wanted to be a painter in life. That was always her dream. She wanted to paint and, and be well known for her paintings and see them displayed in art galleries and to see them made into, you know, uh, uh, little greeting cards and just this was her big life dream and her big hope and she gave herself to this and it didn't work out as so often is the case you know she never got on the picture of Forbes magazine and she never hoisted a, a painting of hers over her head at the top of the heap that would acquire maybe millions of dollars in a in a very competitive art world she never had that opportunity and she ended up wait waitressing tables instead, and, and instead of paintings, she satisfied her creative spirit by arranging hamburgers and french fries artfully on the plate. Slide 14. And the waitress's boss said, you know, her plates always look so beautiful. And, pe and, and if it was me, you would need like 15 of those ketchup hearts, okay? 
if it was me. I, just give me just if I just give me the bottle. All right, that's probably the better approach. But I love this. The waitress's boss said her place always looked beautiful. People loved being served by her. She made every occasion a special occasion, even if it was ordinary or routine. And I think that's what Solomon's trying to say. That that's, that's life. He's urging us that direction. And when I talked about last week, I talked about how we hack away at the ideological jungles of bad ideas and worldviews, and we have to because the culture necessitates we talk about those things. The second part of that vision is that we would also be the irrigation system of, for the deserts. And when we live our life this way, when we make beautiful and sensational what is ordinary and routine, what everybody else sees as apathetic and, and, and disengaged and just another job to do, when we, when we bring this kind of an approach to life, it sets up irrigation systems where you and I can irrigate a, a, de, a, a culture that's feeling more and more like a desert all the time. And when we do our lives this way, we do our jobs this way, and whatever our hands finds to do, we do it with all of our might. Wherever we work, we have the cleanest work area. Whatever we produce, we produce some of the best stuff. Whatever we teach, our lessons are always talked about by the students because we put so much time and energy into the excellence of what we bring. We're making, in, in so many words, we are making ketchup hearts on a hamburger french fry platter and inevitably people want to know why you look and live life so vivaciously and so energetically and so full because my friends this is how you irrigate deserts that are wastelands and when we live life this way Solomon sees it we have that irrigation system in place where God can use our stories our reasons why we do life this way. The ordinary or routine becomes extraordinary when there's love involved. And, and he's saying, at this point in my life, I'm looking back and he's looking, he's saying, go make something beautiful. Forget about the top of the heap. Go make something beautiful. Enjoy, uh, slide five, enjoy Life with your wife. Some of you have been waiting for that verse the whole series. You got it. There it is. Enjoy life with your wife. Listen, it doesn't say live with your wife. You ought to do that, but it doesn't say it that way, does he? He doesn't say put up with your wife. He doesn't say it that way either, does he? No, no. He says enjoy life with your wife. All of this wisdom from a man who had 700 of them. What's that? In one fell swoop of the entire sacred word and pen, he just demolishes a whole life of 700 women and wives, 300 concubines. He says it, he says it in the singular in as much to say, I haven't been thinking right about this my whole life. One woman to love. And he does it in one verse, one phrase. Okay? Enjoy life with your wife. And by extension, wives mean kids, and that means extended family. And, of course, if we could just, just expand the circle on out, grandparents and, and uh, children and grandchildren, and just like I said, the whole, the whole gamut of family life. Enjoy all of it by making relationships. Don't deny, we, don't, we can't deny and stick our head in the sand when it comes to the difficulty, the difficult realities of life, but rather choose to put on festival garments, make the most of life, and go on and enjoy the relationships you have in your life. And make something beautiful. Put some ketchup hearts on some plates while you're at it. 
Whatever your hand finds to do, verse 10. Hastening on here, do it with all your might. There we are, his theme verse. For in the realm of the dead where you're going, there is neither working nor planning or knowledge nor wisdom. All right. And so here we see his, uh, his twofold argument at this point. Okay, you're not going to live forever, so you better engage. The firestorm's coming. The second argument he makes, he urges us in light of family. You're only with them for a limited period of time. You want to mark them and mark them well with beauty and love. And there's a third argument quickly here in the text. And the third argument is that you now currently in this moment, you have capability to do some things that you that you're gifted and able to do and you want to capitalize because tomorrow may not be the same set of scenarios or circumstances for you. Slide number six, verse 11. I have seen something else under the sun, he says. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. And so he basically takes our definitions of success and he just explodes them with this idea that yes there's the swift and the strong and the wise and the discerning and the learned in life but he challenges those formulas for, of success because we can do all the right things in life and still this thing doesn't turn out and pan out the way we had it pictured or wanted it to the race isn't always won by the fastest runner shoes fall off people trip and fall other people trip and fall behind them, and fifth place gets first. You never saw it coming, but it happens. The battle isn't always won by the strongest army. We read in the history books, many smaller armies have defeated uh, much better equipped military forces. Nor does food come to the wise. Okay, the necessities of life aren't guaranteed for the wisest person. I've talked to some really, really smart homeless people. In my life. Wealth isn't the automatic result for the careful investor. Wealth to the brilliant. On the screen you can see it. Our career is buttoned down. It's planned out. Our investments are buttoned down. And then what? Something happens. And we're, we're Coleman Mockler. Forbes magazine. Crashing to the floor with the thing in our hand. Favor to the learned, he says. The promotion isn't always awarded to the best employee. The person who deserves the promotion are not always the ones given what they deserve. The promotion and adulation that they merit, they're denied. And so why do these five events take place so unexpectedly? Why does the fastest runner not win? The bigger army get defeated. The wise person go hungry. The careful investor lose his shirt. The smartest employee get passed over for the promotion. Why does that happen? Well, a lot of reasons, but Solomon says time and chance, look on the screen, time and chance happen to them all. Things happen. Runners trip. The strong can be outsmarted. Wise teachers can lose their jobs. Intelligent entrepreneurs can go bankrupt. And skillful people can fall out of favor. And that's why when he opens in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 9, he says everything's in God's hands. And we have to put things in God's hands. That's where we are leaving. Time and chance is in God's hands. Verse 12, moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly on them. These, these time and chance events seemingly, they are unpredictable, they're inescapable, they're abrupt. Just like a fish swimming around, minding his own business, he's in the net. Or the bird flying around singing, singing a little happy song and in the, in the snare. And, and Solomon says life happens like that sometimes. And great natural abilities and hard work can take you so many places. But he says you can't, talk, you just, you can't count and, and, and feel that these are, these are uh, uh, things that will never, uh, that, that your, your success is going to be a given or that it's going to be predictable. Because life is filled with time and chance. Slide 15. How many of you remember Bo Jackson? Anybody ever heard Bo Jackson? Okay, so I do too. And uh, he was one of the greatest athletes of my generation. Uh, he was born in 1962. He was an all-pro NFL football player. 
He was a major league all-star player. Roll the, just roll the video if you would. And I once saw him play in Kansas City. No kidding. He hit a fly ball. I think it was center field, if I recall correctly. And he was in frustration that he flied out. He took this bat, probably 34, 35-inch wooden bat, and he goes like this over his knee and just snaps it, throws it to the dugout. Man, that's crazy. The guy was just a beast. He was an animal. Nobody could stop him. He could run over linebackers. I mean, he was just a killer of a running back. Incredible baseball player. Phenomenal athlete. Just unseen in a generation. This guy was so incredible. And he's running down the sidelines, and he gets tackled hard from the side, and all that muscular strength going forward is pulled back and jerked the opposite direction. In his leg. They tried to have hip replacement surgery. He had that. And he managed to play a little MLB after that, but he was never the same. He had to retire and get out of the sport. What am I talking about? Time and chance took its toll. And Walker, as he made the tackle, had only the one leg to grab, and apparently Bo Jackson shaken up a bit. That can happen. Gotten to a seat as yet. That was a 34 yard run by Jackson. And you think everything's going great, and then you got this massive athlete. And now you got to be held off crowd. the field because time and chance. He may have pulled a muscle as he was trying to pull Level. away from a tackle. Like because he really wasn't hit on the knee. And so Solomon says, now watch Kevin no, no, Walker stay with me in my big picture argument. He's pulling on he's not going to live forever. He's going to urge you to action. That Bo did trying okay? to pull away. You have a family to invest in. He's going to urge you to action. You have opportunity to make a difference. You, you presently have the physical abilities and mental capacities to make a difference. He's going to urge you to act before you lose that ability like Bo Jackson lost his. Quickly now to wrap this up, okay? A fourth argument that he makes is from the perspective of stewardship. You're going to look at yourself in the mirror someday. This is why you want to... This is why you want to do everything. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. He's trying to convince you of this in five different ways. And he says from a stewardship perspective, you're going to look at yourself someday in the mirror and you're going to wonder if you did your best and if you took your best shot. He's, you're going to wonder that. And he tells a personal story, verses 13 through 16. Slide number six on the screen. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, built huge siege works against it. And basically the way this works is you put a city under siege, you let people go in all day long, because the more people inside the city, the more resources they're going to consume and use up, but nobody could come out unless you surrender the city. So everybody allowed in, nobody allowed out. You starved them out. You drove them out with starvation, with thirst and dehydration. And, and that's how you conquered and laid siege to an ancient city. Verse 15, now there, there lived in that city a poor man but wise. And he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. And if Solomon's context is maintained here, somebody more popular or more powerful walked away with all the credit, so this guy is forgotten. And I just want to say right here that the greatest men in life will, will probably never be famous or rich. They won't win medals. They won't win elections. They simply get up every day, and they seize the day, and they enjoy, and they, and, and they, and they make ketchup hearts on plates of their family, and they, and they do it with love. And men and women do it with love. They get up every day. They go to work. They keep food on the table for their families. They get on their knees, and they pray fervent intercessory prayers for sons and daughters, and they give their sons and daughters in marriage, and, and, they, and they catch bridesmaids on steps, and, and they do cartwheels down the center aisle of life. They do their lives quietly, many times without recognition, many times anonymously. They do their work. And these are the essence, the beauty of life. These are the people, the salt and the earth, people of the world. And Solomon says, Solomon says, you, you may be wise and you may be poor and you may not get recognition and there may never be 
a Forbes cover for you. But in so many words, he says, don't worry about it. That's not the important thing. I want you to live for this. Not this dog-eat-dog stuff. Finally, this morning, he says, and he argues just from a standpoint of legacy. He says, he says, you may want to share your life expertise in so many words. You may want to share your life expertise with somebody someday. So you want to do whatever your hand finds to do. Do it with all your might. Give yourself to it 100%. You're going to learn some things in life by doing it that way. And so Solomon starts sharing this wisdom. So I said, verse 16, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised often, and his words are no longer needed. In other words, wisdom might not win the most applause in this life, but it's still right. Do what's right. Pat, uh, Mayor Patty Fizzle, a day or so before her passing, I said, Patty, what is your legacy? What do you want me to share at your funeral? What is your lasting mantra and life, um, life um, principle and ethos statement for the world to hear and she said Joey she said tell the people do what's right no matter when they want to bulldoze your city into the river do what's right run for mayor if you have to but do what's right Verse 17, the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. The loudest voice isn't always the wisest voice. He says, remember that. And remember, this is your legacy we're talking about. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Solomon is trying to impart a legacy to the next generation. And he's trying to tell you sometimes it's pastors in cornfields in rural towns in Indiana who preach the Bible, who sometimes have a nugget of wisdom that will save your life. And Solomon says, there is no greater legacy. And when I do these weddings for people in, this, in, in our church family, and I, I remember these guys. I, rem I remember Isaac taking that towel and throwing it out on the mat, you know, those wrestling mats. It's just, just a little guy. And now he's grown up, and he loves the Lord, and he wants to honor God with his marriage. And he can cook really good. I found that out. And that's beautiful. And you're going to want to invest in these. That's what you're doing as a church. Every time you give, every time you attend, every time you lead in our, in our fellowship and, and champion a great idea, you're setting us up to impart wisdom and insight and worldview in the lives of people that changes them. And now they're going to be exceptional. He and so many others are going to be drawing ketchup hearts on plates all over our community because you've invested in him and we've invested in him and that's what we're about and that's what Solomon's about and so church as we wrap this up today I want to share with you a closing a closing story from Tommy Nelson no relation he pastors in Denton, Denton Bible Church in Denton Texas I feel like, feel like it's an appropriate way to close this though on Memorial Day weekend this time of year when we're thinking of graduations and even reunions and things of this nature. And we think about investing in the right ways in life. Tommy took an airline flight, slide 16 if you would for me. He took an airline flight and he, it was a short flight. And so usually when you have an airline magazine on these flights, they'll, they'll have short articles because you're not going to be on the flight that long. They want you to be able to read all through it. And so he read one of those articles that was in an airline magazine tucked in the pocket in front of him. And he said he, he read a story about two ladies who had a business. And you give them your high school yearbook, and they track down all of your classmates for you and, and for your reunions. They'll do it for you, which is a phenomenal deal. And these ladies share about what they have observed in the years that they have done this work for people. At your 10-year reunion, for example... They will tell you everybody's like 28 years old. Um, you still have your looks and your strength and your shine is still on your marriage. Uh, your kids are still young, so the story is kind of still out on them, right? 
and everyone is still pretty much like they were in high school. Nerds are nerds, jocks are jocks, and so on and so forth. It's kind of a parade where everyone kind of shows off their life at their 10-year reunion. That's kind of how it goes. These ladies have observed this. And they said at the 20-year high school reunion, everyone is 38 years old. You know, your looks and fitness are starting to slide just a little bit. Um, the shine has kind of worn off maybe the marriage a little bit. Your kids are now teenagers. We won't even get into that. All right. The cliques have failed. The cliques of high school have kind of failed and fallen through. And everybody is much more humble about things and about life because usually 20 years in, it's a better reunion. The 30-year reunion, everybody's now 48. The looks are pretty much gone. <laughs> hey, I'm 55, okay? So just know, all right, I'm with you. I'm with you, right? I had no idea my dad would be looking back at me at the mirror, but he is every day. The looks are pretty much gone. You try your best to preserve the past. You talk about it all the time, kind of what you did in high school, because that was really, you were on top of the world. And your marriage might, might have even ended by 48, and your kids, you hardly know them by now, you know, and that's when you're 48. Your 40-year reunion, you're about to turn 60. And by this time, you realize that life isn't, isn't just a show anymore. And the lady said that the 50th year reunion is the most tender. You're about to turn 70. And you're aware of all the people that aren't there anymore. Your nest has been long empty. You brag about how small your apartment is or how small your footprint at home is now because you downgraded, downsized. You talk about how you don't have to go up the stairs anymore or mow the grass. You've simplified life. In fact, if somebody looks too good when they're at this age, everybody kind of picks on them and makes fun of them because you're too flashy, right? And they just kind of make a joke of it. You show each other your scars and you talk about your vitals as if they're Super Bowl championships. What's your blood pressure? Okay, what's my, here's my heart rate. And that becomes like the big conversation. She said the most tender moment is when you sing the alma mater one final time before you all leave after your 50th year reunion. And everybody cries because they know there'll be no 60-year reunion. You made it. And you know many did not. And the lady said, we learned too late what we should have learned way earlier. Life is not about acquiring or exhibiting what's been acquired. No, Solomon would tell you, forget what's gone, appreciate what still remains, look forward to what's coming next, and he's going to urge you, start and start today. Creating something special, beautiful, out of just an ordinary day. When I read that story, I thought about the class reunion on the Andy Griffith Show, season three, episode 19. I want you to watch Andy and Barney as they wrap up this high school reunion.
Remember, it's just us doing life together. Don't forget to make some ketchup hearts on some plates in the journey. Because someday, you're going to sing your alma mater one last time. And it's curtains. You're done. And you're going to look back, and hopefully, you've made good decisions. So you don't have to feel the pressure of the firestorm that Solomon felt trying to get these last exhortations in before he transitions out. You know, as we close, the gospel is really in our passage today. There's another poor man who lived, who saved a city with wise, wise decisions. He was destitute as he walked this life, but he was wise. He, he, in fact, he lived a perfect life. And he said incredible wise things for the world to hear. And unfortunately, the world has forgotten this poor man. And I think, I, know, I think you know who I'm talking about this morning. The gospel is in Ecclesiastes 9. Jesus came into our world poor, destitute, owning very little. A cloak on his back. And it was given away at his execution. He said wise things about living self-sacrificially. And then he modeled that. Spiked to a cross and he died. He rose again. Many in the world have forgotten him. Hopefully those of you and those in the church have remembered this wise man who did incredible things. Maybe you have forgotten him this morning. And it's wonderful that he has taken on, he has taken on your forgottenness and my forgottenness, this cosmic forgottenness. He has taken it on and he says, I love you anyway. I'm dying for you. If you've not reached a place in your journey where you said, Lord, I need this, not only the wisdom of this wise man, I need the work and the atonement of this wise man in and over my life. Because I'm not sure I'm ready to say goodbye at my last high school reunion just yet. I'm not sure that I have created enough ketchup hearts on plates. I've got some more cartwheels I want to do. Some more joy I want to share. Some more people to catch. Some more I love you to speak. It's just you and it's just me. What do you say? Let's get up. Let's go do something extraordinary in the ordinary. And let the love of Jesus flow through you. You have been a phenomenal church listeners this morning. Will you stand with me one final time? Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for a fantastic group of people that we love doing life with. Thank you. Thank you for each of them and their investment in my kids over the years so that they can have better high school reunions someday. Thank you so much for grandkids and kids and weddings and festivities and white garments and just living life in your joy. Father, you have commissioned us. You have urged us through the words of an ancient king this morning to reevaluate things. And I don't know what ketchup parts need to be created, but I have a feeling this church is going to unleash them in this community, in their families. They're going to do something special, and I commission them in this next great era of their life and their journey. We pray all these things in your name this morning. Amen. You have been great. You're dismissed. Have a great day. Happy Memorial Day.
time to go.